Welcome to Tipping Points, the podcast that reveals moments in people's lives that change everything. My name is Luke Edelston, and each week I interview fascinating people with extraordinary stories to find their tipping points. Hey, so this is a bit of a personal intro on this one. I'm going to be splitting this one up into two parts. The first part being about Craig's earlier life and career. It's really interesting. We talk about things like bionic eyes, systems engineering, and it's all in a way that should be easy to understand and fun as well. And then part two is more about some serious things that I think are really important, like depression and infertility. So these are things that people don't want to talk about, but uh, even if you haven't experienced them yourselves, it's good to understand so you can... Well, try and understand other people and recognise when people are really struggling. So I think that's really important to listen to part two as well. So I really hope you enjoy both of these parts. And today we're going to have part one. Enjoy. Today I bring you Craig Savage. Craig Savage lives in multiple worlds. His national identity is mixed since he emigrated from the US to Australia. His education is technical and managerial. And he's a board member and community organiser for Ultimate Australia. Craig is also an analytics integrator and an instructor at Kaplan Business School. Craig and I have tons in common. We've worked in systems engineering, played Ultimate together, and have had battles with depression and suicidal thoughts. We've both emerged from these hardships, though, to create greater things than ourselves. Today, we'll be talking about Craig's journey as it relates to me, Marioche, see episode eight, and Ultimate. We'll go from Craig's perfect life to his withdrawal and when he had a major tipping point. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Virtually. Great to have you. Yeah, well, that's how it's always been so far for me. Maybe season two, if there's going to be a thing, will be uh, in person. That would be a whole new experience for me, actually. Well, I, I thought I'd start off with your sort of early career and things like that. Since I was looking at your LinkedIn, and it's very varied, as I was mentioning earlier. Mm. And uh, with some serious commonalities at the beginning, as we sort of mentioned in the intro as well. And you were working for... Well, for the devil initially, uh, defense, as I did too. <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Oh. Yeah. Well, no, I'm joking really, but um, I now don't work in it, so I could say that. Um, and neither do you. So you used to work in uh, Raytheon as a, as a systems engineer. And That's I was right. just wondering how you initially got into that. So I was living in Tucson, Arizona, and I was in an applied math program. And what I thought an applied math program would be and what it was were two different things. I was expecting to learn lots of mathematical tools, solve problems, fancy ways to solve equations, do some computer programming, and it ended up being theorems and proofs and other things that I really struggled to get my head around. It wasn't the kind of engineering side of things that I was expecting. So I left grad school with a master's, even though I was planning to get a PhD, because I was always hoping to be a university professor, and a master's just wasn't going to cut it. But I had a life in Tucson. I had friends. I had a place to live. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the mountains. If you ever live somewhere where there's mountains and you move away, maybe you'll understand kind of what it's like. And the largest technical place to work in Tucson is Raytheon. And so I went to a career fair, I had an interview, I impressed, pressed the per, I impressed the person interviewing me, they brought me down on site, and they offered me a job. And it was good money, and working on really interesting problems. I hit it off well with the, the man who would eventually become my manager, and 
I I spent a while thinking about this because it was with the devil, as you say. I didn't really want to be in defense. I wanted to be a teacher. So I went for a walk on aforementioned mountain and sat at the top of the mountain and thought about it and made peace with myself that so long as I didn't work on anything that targeted people, I could do it. So I worked there for many years. I worked on national missile defense, kind of hit a bullet with a bullet, and made a lot of great friends, learned a lot of great math, uh, the mathematics in the defense industry, and the problems, the real-world problems that, that you want to solve, especially if, you know, on missile defense you're talking about, if a nuclear missile comes over, how do we save the lives of tens of millions of people? Which, when you put it that way, it doesn't really seem like the devil. At least it mm -hmm. didn't to me. So that's that's kind of how that started. There was a lot of research, a lot of innovative stuff, not a lot of data, because in the defense industry, most of your adversaries don't hand you data about all of their all of their equipment and all of their plans. So a lot of simulation, programming, everything that I thought my applied math education would be, I got at Raytheon. All right. So you went from basically doing maths at university and then wanted to really apply something in an engineering sense, but your, your university was a bit too theoretical, you could say. Yeah, yeah, for, for my taste, anyway, that's right. Yeah, well, I felt a bit like that, to be honest, because I did a physics degree and uh, applied maths a bit less theoretical. I was living with a couple of mathematicians and, yeah, the, the, what they were describing... And actually, I was I was going to do maths at university, but then my teacher, my maths teacher, said, "Don't do maths." <laughs> and I think she was—I can't remember the exact reasoning, but I think it was something along the lines of it just gets far too technical and just not real life. It's just really far away from what you'd expect, um, because you know, at college, well, you wouldn't call it college, but secondary school maybe for you or high school—is that school. the last school? Yeah. High school, yeah. yeah. High school, um, yeah. Yeah. So at high school. It's kind of applicable. It's sort of practical in some ways, and it still applies to stuff. But then when you go to university, often the, the jump isn't what you expect. And I think a lot of people have that when they go to university. It gets into so much more detail. And you're obviously doing one thing straight for three or four years, potentially. So, yeah, I can definitely associate with that. And uh, it sounds like your systems engineering was a bit different to my systems engineering, but I'm not sure. So I'm, I don't want to put you on the, on the spot here, um, but I'll maybe define what I've understand by systems engineering myself uh, for people who are wondering um, so systems engineering the sort of classical definition would be an interdisciplinary approach to com uh, complex projects and I guess it's, it's a big process that's sort of holistically looking at all the different disciplines bringing them together um, and it's often used in very complicated scenarios like um, defense um, and actually had some of its origins around NASA as well, because obviously very expensive, quite complex. And that, that actually might be a nice segue into the fact you mentioned to me that you were working in, in rocket science at some point. I forgot that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the National Missile Defense. And oh, to your point about, about systems engineering is the idea was if there's a missile incoming, you send up a missile of your own. A lot of stuff happens, and basically you're trying to find and hit the warhead. And what I was tasked with was the... Uh, two parts. There was the discrimination of the various shiny points in the sky, find out which one's the warhead, and what was called handover. Because, of course, there are other sensors that will try to help guide you, 
and you have your own sensor on board, but then you have to align what the other sensors are telling you with what you see. From a point of view of systems engineering, this was in the early 2000s, and these days, you know, people have their GPUs running neural networks and all these really fancy systems. The idea was, okay, you've got four seconds, power is limited, you need to design an algorithm that will operate in a limited power, limited memory environment quickly. So designing something really fancy, sure, you could do it, but it wouldn't fit on the system. And there are all these trade-offs about how much energy is it going to take. Well, if it takes too much energy, yeah, we can, we can put a bigger battery on, but then we need to take off fuel. It's very limited real estate on a missile. So all of these trade-offs suddenly became important to trade off how much memory does it take, how fast is it, how, how, how complex is it, how big is the code even, what language is it in, can we design uh, FPGA, can we get specialized hardware to do the calculation for us or does it need to be in C? And I did all my development in MATLAB and then someone said, okay, now do it in C. It's like, I don't know, I don't know C, well, learn it. And off I went. Hmm. That's interesting. So, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, as you were describing some of the earlier stuff about coding and things, I, I thought, ooh, okay, so this is more like, uh, sometimes when people say systems engineering, they actually, and if you uh, do a job search on it or something like that, you'll find things that are like IT systems. So initially I was like, oh, I wonder if it's more like that. But the way you describe it is, is, yeah, it's very broad and brings in many competing factors and constraints that you've often got. Um, and in my work at the moment, I'm working on railway upgrades and things like that. And in the UK, uh, they built the railways in the 19th century, some of them. And so you're constrained by existing uh, rail lines, uh, bridges, structures, all these things. And of course, cost. Uh, you don't have unlimited money, although it is a first world nation. Uh, you know, there's a budget. And so it's balancing all those constraints together, isn't it? And uh, I, th I guess that's really what systems engineering is trying to come up with the optimum outcome based on all of that that meets your mission objectives. And I suppose that's very uh, appropriate in the context of defense as well. Yeah, and there is there is a very common problem because today I call myself a data scientist, but the range of what you might call a data scientist is huge and can mean different things to different people. Just like systems engineer can mean different things in different contexts. And what's the difference between a data scientist and a data analyst and a ML ops and a machine learning engineer and a decision scientist and the titles just keep going on and on and on and there's substantial overlap and then people putting their flags and puffing their chest out to be like no I am the real data scientist and you are a poser how dare you compare yourself to me and all these labels is <laughs> just sort of like but it's a label like what if you want to learn more, like let's dig down past the label and actually understand what we're talking about and what we mean. There's no need to be be adversarial about it. Let's just seek to understand each other. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's just a matter of being able to have like a concept. Uh, a label is useful for describing concepts in very brief fashions, but people do get hung up on the war of labels. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not that useful. As long as you understand what the other person means, that's the main that's the problem over, really, isn't it? It's like, okay, dis label disappears. This was useful for the initial engagement. Now let's talk about something useful, you know, something more interesting, potentially. Yeah, well, it's a 
quite an interesting beginning, but then big shift as well. So maybe you can tell me uh, towards the end of that career, I suppose, really, what mm-hmm. what was shifting for you and why did you change to what came next? So first, we were doing research, as I was saying, a bunch of different kind of technical areas. And at one point, we had a contract where one of our subcontractors was the University of Melbourne. And one day, my boss was lamenting that they were doing all this great work in Melbourne, but the time change was just so hard. It was really hard to really understand what they were doing. And if only there was someone that they could send to Australia for like two months to really just sit, sit with them and, and understand them and talk to them and, and meet with all the experts, and not just these 30-minute phone calls, which really weren't getting anywhere. And after he was contemplating this for a while, I think he realized that I was waving my arms and jumping up and down to volunteer to go. And so they, they sent me to Melbourne for a couple of months, or sorry, for a month, and then I was in Adelaide for a month. And that's when the work I was doing and the academic side of it started to really ramp up. And then we got an extension of the contract, again with a subcontract at the University of Melbourne. And I said, well, you still want me to go down and work with them? How about I simultaneously get a PhD because I still wanted to be a university professor and work this contract? And because it's a PhD, I'll be doing research. It'll be cutting edge research that satisfies the contract. Let's do this. And so for three years, I came down to Melbourne and got a PhD while on a Raytheon salary. And yeah, that was, that was kind of the end of, of that. And I decided, okay, now it's time to go back, back after my dream, get the PhD, get, get the contacts in, in academia. Let's go after this professor thing, because mm. after the U.S. invaded Iraq, I really didn't want to be in defense anymore. Right. Yeah, I can understand that. Where did the desire to be a professor come from? I've always wanted to be a professor when I was young, up until that point. There's more to that story later, but I had always okay. wanted to be a teacher. I always wanted to uh, teach adults. I wanted to be at the cutting edge. I wanted the prestige. I wanted to be to be the smartest guy in the room. I wanted all these things when I was when I was young, and growing up in kind of grade school, middle school, I was kind of one of the smartest kids. Up until year eleven, I went to a special school for science and math called the Governor's School of Science and Mathematics, or the Governor's School for S and M because you know we were teenagers, so that's what we called it. And <laughs> yeah, that was that was a bit of a shock for me because I was no longer the smartest kid in class. But talking to the teachers there, it was more of that that university lifestyle that you got to help the smart kids. You got to help the people that were really on the way up. And they were, I'd say, equals, but less experienced. And even some of the kids there were probably smarter than their professors in terms of IQ, Mm. but without the experience and everything else. And, And the idea of taking these great people and really pushing them and having them excel at the time was my dream. That's, that's interesting. Uh, do you think that's like a natural altruistic side of you that you've picked up from your parents or your friends or something? Or like you mentioned the prestige as well. I mean, I can mm-hmm. definitely understand that. 
I was sort of drawn by the title of Master of Physics because it makes me sound like I'm Magneto from X-Men or something like that. <laughs> yep. um, but I never got there because I realized it was you know, similar to you, I guess. It was like, you know, I wanted to do something more practical with it. But yeah, where, where do you think that desire to teach others came from? My parents tell me about when I was a child and my sister was born. I have a sister who's 15 months younger than I am. And they said that a lot of her development was stunted because if she wanted something, I would just go get it for her. So she didn't learn to walk because she could just point. And if I was there, and I often was, then I would just do it for her. So I think I've always been this way, even from from my youngest years. And I have no recollection of this, but my parents just tell me that I would just do things and help things. And that's just always been me. That's a nice natural trait to have, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Mostly, yeah. Until you you learn the lesson that it's hard to help people that don't want your help. Mm, Okay. That sounds like somewhere to go maybe a bit later as well. Or maybe even now. Uh, Is there something that pops up for you on that one? People that don't want your help? Yeah, it's when I was when I was younger, I would, you know, I'd overhear a conversation and be like, well, actually, actually, I think you've got that wrong, random person at the next table, because let me just explain it to you because because you should be corrected. Well, that wasn't (laughs) maybe that wasn't the (laughs) best approach to a social situation, but I didn't understand. It's like because they're they're wrong. Like I can just I can just correct them. What's the like? No. No judgment. Like I'm not looking down on you. I don't think you're stupid. You're just I. I can correct you. Well, let's do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. I think I did that a bit as well. I don't think I was quite as altruistic as you were. So I think I was being a dick about it when I was younger. Because <laughs> you know you want to have that feeling of being good enough, being accepted, and things. And one way to be good enough is to be good at something, isn't it? Uh, and I wasn't good at sports, so I was. I pushed myself really hard in academia. I was never the smartest person, definitely not. Not never the smartest, but I was, I was always the hardest trying person. And that gets you quite far. Uh, it's quite a useful uh, trait to have. But yeah, um, well, it's nice that you have the, the right intention. But yeah, uh, you sort of learn that over from experience, don't you? You do it a few times. People just think, people look at you going, eh, nah. <laughs> yeah. so you, was you I talking of, you, to you? It's like, well, no, you were talking to him. But let, I can correct you on that too. <laughs> don't advise it don't advise it yeah well so that that landed you in in melbourne and uh but then you left that university and it looks like you went into banking then so what happened there yeah so that was that was a bit of a an adventure too banking came a little bit later do you want me to go straight to banking or do you want me to fill in the gaps oh go on you fill in the gaps Yeah, so I was working, I finished my PhD in Melbourne, and one of my supervisors said, yeah, you know, no worries, we really like what you're doing, we'll uh, we'll get you a contract and an extension. But then an election was called, and all funds were frozen. And then I got a nice letter from the Australian government saying, right, congratulations, you finished your PhD. Um, As a result, you're not a student anymore, and so we're canceling your student visa. Uh, You'll have to leave once once you get your degree. That was rough Mm. Um, because just like I didn't want to leave Tucson when I went to work for Raytheon, well, I had a life in Melbourne and I was assured that, you know, I was doing good work and they would want to keep me on. But then, you know, sorry, 
so I packed up my things, went back to the U.S., lived with some friends who were kind enough to take me in, and started applying for jobs. I was about a week away from working at Subway, which, you know, the, the consolation I had was, it's not that I had a PhD, and so I would ask, do you want fries with that? Because Subway doesn't really offer subs. So that was all right. And then I got a teaching job in Tucson, again, at a community college there. And I loved it. I, I remember filling out a form, a survey, that there was a question of, you know, how much money were you making last year? And I put down $80,000. And how much money are you making this year? And I put down $18,000 as an <laughs> adjunct. And there was that moment of looking at the form and realizing one of them was eight zero, the other one was one eight. And while they kind of sound the same, they're night and day in terms of lifestyle and everything else. And then it, it was really just that, that concrete moment of money doesn't matter to me. I'm so much happier teaching here than I was at Raytheon, especially toward the end when my heart just wasn't in it anymore. And so that was, that was quite a good time. I enjoyed that job so much. And it really reaffirmed, okay, I'm a teacher at heart. How do I make this happen? But then I applied for a permanent role and I didn't get it. I was a bit put off by that. I started looking for other roles and there was one in Melbourne to work on a bionic eye with Bionic Vision Australia at the University of Melbourne. I had all the contacts. I applied. They accepted me, picked up my life and moved to Melbourne again. Um, the woman I was dating at the time was going to come with me. We had quite a big fight, though, and her family wasn't really supportive of her going. And so our relationship ended, and I moved alone. And that was bumpy. Yeah, sounds it. So that was the bionic eye, and my contract was for two years. And I got permanent residency, so I got the right to stay in Melbourne. So I didn't get another letter saying, congratulations on fulfilling your contract. It's time for you to get out again. Yeah. Um, and I came to the end of my contract with BVA. And it wasn't BVA's Bionic Vision Australia. It wasn't clear if things were going to get extended. So I started looking around. A former PhD supervisor was with National Australia Bank. So I gave her my CV. And I was once again at one of these, okay, I have this job with the Bionic Eye, which is a fantastic project, but everything's uncertain. Or a bank. And while people might think, you know, the bank's the devil, having coming from U.S. defense, suddenly banking doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> and I was just looking at the two, and the bank was more money, more leave, more security, and I was moving in with my girlfriend, now wife, thinking of starting a family, and it was another one of these moments of, well, which, which one's going to be really important to me? Is it this university job or security? So I went to the bank. But yeah, it just shows really you were prioritizing your values at this point. It was, you know, you value sort of variety and interest and uh, work, I suppose, to some extent. Although you might tell me in a minute that banking actually proved to have loads of challenges. It was really interesting. Um, and I suppose that social good perspective thing as well, like this bionic eye sounds pretty cool. We have to explain more about that in a minute. Um, like that 
that sounds really good. But yeah, at the same time, you realised that your your family, well, the, your wife now is very important to you, and uh, having that certainty was really important to you. And and that's that's actually a good thing to realise to have it. I mean, that's sort of a mature thing to think about, isn't it? It's like what is more important at, at this point in my life. Uh, I'm not sure people always think about that in a lot of detail. They just float along for quite a while and don't make those decisions. So I think that was quite interesting. Uh, you have to tell me more about this bionic eye, though. It just sounds very cool. <laughs> it was really cool. Um, it still what is, is really it? cool, I guess. So it's a retinal implant. The idea is for people with, uh, what is it? macular degeneration or retinitis pigmentosa there we go i was like what's rp what's rp <laughs> um retinitis pigmentosa is basically you lose your vision from the outside that everything narrows down until you only have a very small small window it's like looking through a a, a tube that's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and for these types of patients they're their rods and cones, right? The photoreceptors stop working, but all the, the nerves still work. So the idea is you implant an electrical chip at the back of the eye, you use electricity to stimulate the nerves, and then it's very similar to, they call it prosthetic vision or bionic vision, <laughs> as BVA might imply. And, but but it's artificial. You're not recreating a, a scene. You are artificially stimulating these nerves, not in the way that light falling on your rods and cones and going through the system normally would. So people perceive something, and my job was to try to develop an algorithm to take a target image and stimulate the nerves by electrical imp impulses to generate that scene and it's very it's biomedical engineering is very different from say electrical or, or physics because electrical electrical systems happen very regularly and if you build a chip in a certain way it does the same thing over and over again all of our eyes are very different if you go in and map out how the rods and cones are connected to everything. And so the same chip with the same algorithm and two eyes would be perceived very differently by those two people. Oh, so wow. it's, it's not like your standard mechanical engineering problem of you want to mass produce cars, you build everything to the same standards and it works the same way. Um, bio, biological systems aren't like that. I think it's what the hunt for red October where they, they're recording some sound and they hear something that's very regular and they're like right that's not natural it's too regular because biological systems aren't as regular as you might might think they are yeah well that's really interesting that's, that's fascinating uh i mean i'm aware of the differences in my vision when my blood sugar drops for example and so how that works exactly i i'm guessing there's an element of like how much blood circulates to your eye and and all that and then therefore how much oxygen there is and then how efficient your eye is at, at, at translating photon light energy into electrical impulses and so on maybe that's it it's just strange because like you can see i can see something well, let's compare like 4k with hd you know if i've got good blood sugar or whatever it might be 4k and then you know your blood sugar goes down 
it can go down to you know HD or worse. It's just like how is that possible? So we, even with that level of variation in, in a, a semi freak like myself, because I have to manage that sort of stuff, and my eyes haven't been that great anyway. But the complexity of that sounds pretty vast. Yeah, and it's it's very comparable to defense in a lot of ways because you don't get a lot of data, not because you can't get it, but it's hard to get, right? You don't want to to just put chips in the back of people's eyes to see what happens. The ethics involved are substantial and it varies from person to person. So you might get a lot of data on one person, but you can't really apply it to the next. So there was a a trial where we had three patients that uh, volunteered to take part in the study. One of them wrote a a book called I Spy with My Bionic Eye. Um, I'd have to look up her name. Diane, I think. <laughs> I forget her name offhand, but she's a she's a instructor of her own right. She's teaches at Deakin University here in Melbourne, and it's in her book. She says one, you know, retinitis pigmentosis hereditary. So it's possible that her family might have this. Maybe not. Hopefully not. But she talks about from from her teacher point of view that all these engineers are in there like crossing their fingers and hoping it worked. And when they turn it on and she's like, yep, I see something, just how happy all the all the geeky engineers are. When I say she sees something, it's it's a spot of light. It's mm. it's not like, you know, she saw the room around her. I, again, the, the human eye is too complex for us to, to match things. It's a prosthetic mm. vision, not like, not even like, like Geordi LaForge on Star Trek or Predator or anything. It's really just points of light or flashes or shapes or, or like electricity because we're using electricity mm. but as you think about like electricity down a wire and it kind of this this stylized example of lightning bolts or whatever it's it's sort of like that but it's how she described it just shows how amazing the, the human body and, and biology in general is like the way it's evolved to work so well for people and also the level of subjectivity within vision uh, for one thing, but also just in life. Like if our oh. eyes see stuff differently and our brain interprets that in certain ways as well, then that's just one layer of complexity and subjectiveness that our brains are just interpreting the whole time. So I mean, it's no surprise that we all have completely different human experiences, really, when you even oh, yeah. look at the very smallest thing like an eye. It's incredible. Yeah, and... I kind of geeked out about some of the the eye characteristics. So the, your fastest reflex is in your eye. It's called the vestibulo-ocular reflex, which is basically if you look at something and turn your head, your eyes stay fixed on it. That's a reflex. Um, some people don't have that, where if they turn their head, their eyes move. Mm. Uh, some people don't control their eye movements. Their, their eyes shake. And for some people, if you were born that way, your body had your your brain adapts and the world doesn't seem to move but for other people if it's a degenerative condition the world appears to move around them because uh-huh. your brain assumes that if you're looking at something and you move your head you know whatever you're looking at you, your eyes are fixed to it but if your eyes are moving it's it's kind of like the reverse of being in a planetarium where you're still mm-hmm. and you perceive everything else moving well if your eyes are moving and your brain doesn't realize that that's 
not normal, then your brain thinks everything is moving around you and it's quite debilitating. And the only treatment is get them to close their eyes. Huh. Is that the basis of vertigo? It's so the the vestibular system is the basis of vertigo. But mm. but it's when your your eyes and your vestibular system don't agree that your brain has to decide which one it trusts. Huh. That's and there's there's fun, fun experiments like the the rubber hand experiment. Have you heard of the rubber hand experiment? Uh, maybe, but do tell me. Okay, so you you take someone and you set them in a chair and you you put their arm behind a screen so they don't see their arm, but inside you have a rubber hand, and it doesn't need to look like theirs or anything else. And then they have a two pronged paintbrush, and you brush the rubber hand with one of the paintbrushes, and the other one is is stroke is stroking your real hand but you don't see that and they do that for a while and then they they rotate the brush so it's no longer stroking your hand it's only stroking the rubber hand but you feel it and then someone comes in with a hammer and hits the rubber hand people recoil in pain but it's not like they haven't they haven't actually been hit but (laughs) you you draw the the association between your eyes seeing the hand and the paintbrush rubbing the hand and so your brain draws that connection so that even when they stop brushing your hand and only brush the rubber hand your brain connects it yeah yeah that's crazy i've heard something like that before because people who lose limbs in well whatever scenario they end up having like phantom feelings Mm -hmm. in their limbs that they don't have anymore so they'd lose their hand let's say and they'd still feel like their hands are there, even though they know it's there, even though they can see it's not there. And they can, I think they can actually use similar experiments where they put, you know, the, well, the arm into a similar thing and then start stimulating things and then remove it. And I think they can treat that phantom limb thing using those, well, the sort of the setup that you were talking about. So it is really crazy, all that stuff. Yeah, and even on the bionic eye, there was okay. We're gonna we're gonna stimulate the retina. That was that was only kind of the introduction. The larger plan was, and then use brain plasticity, so that if we show the same thing over and over again, people will recognize what it is. So there might be a special collection of electrodes that, if we turned them on in just the right way, would mean a person. And it might not look like a face. It might not look like a person. It might be flashes of light in, in kind of random areas. But if you did that enough and said, person, do it again, person, do it again, person, eventually when the person sees that flash, that combination of flashes and, and other stimuli, they would know, oh, there's a person there. So how far has that got then? How, is it usable for people now? They were doing trials. Um, the main goal was navigation so that people wouldn't need a guide dog or a cane or whatever, that they would be able to walk around safely. Again, ethics problems, because once you say, okay, you don't need a dog anymore, if they do trip, if they do hit something, then what? Uh, When I left, they were doing these types of experiments in uh, controlled conditions. So they would make a maze of sorts with you know sheets hanging from the ceiling and they would ask people to walk through the maze with and without the device on because you need to have an, an A-B experiment, a control, if you will. Yep. And 
they were having really good results. Um, BVA, Australia is not the only place to, to be doing this. There's a couple other companies. There's one in the US, one in Germany. I think there's more in the US, but it's a hard problem, man. It sounds incredibly difficult. Uh, and I'm imagining, because we were both using Zoom, we we're both using like blurred backgrounds. What I'm imagining is an initial goal is to be able to see something like a <laughs> like a blurred background. You know, you can see the outlines of objects, and you can see if you're walking up to the to a road that there is a defining point between the pavement and, and the actual road itself. And then you know you're safe because you know that that's there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I can I can imagine how difficult that is because, well, yeah, just, <laughs> it just sounds unbelievably difficult. But you mentioned ethics as well, and um, well, I did notice in your uh, online CV and LinkedIn that you did end up getting a doctorate, didn't you, in oh, yeah, philosophy? Yeah. It, well, was that around it, the same it, time? It says, it says Doctor of Philosophy. It's in Electrical Engineering. Oh, right, okay. The, the, the title is Doctor of Philosophy because, you know, PhD, Philosophical yeah. Doctor, whatever. Oh, okay. it's, not, it's not Philosophy, Philosophy. Yeah, right. It's the, the work I was doing for Raytheon at University of Melbourne. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So I thought, wow, that's that's a jump. But then again, you know, when you get into the funda fundamentals of like the universe or or maths and all of that, it does become it can become philo philosophical, can't it? Yeah. The the kind of the kind of cliche pro progression is engineers become physicists, physicists become mathematicians, mathematicians become philosophers, because so many of the equations you write down just work. You know, predicting. Uh, predicting during an eclipse, you, you should be able to see the apparent position of the sun move. Or if black holes are real, you should be able to see this, right? You can prescribe observations that, given the math holds, this is something unusual that you should that should work, and then it does. And people really dive down that rabbit hole. Go, I won't say crazy, but. There's a bit of, you know, does God play dice in terms of the, the philosophy of it all. Yeah, I can see it blows people's minds to some extent. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, man. It's weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was what interested me about things like doing cosmology in my degree, was that I wasn't really interested. Oh, I was sort of interested in quantum stuff, but that's like obviously the smallest possible things. Um, but cosmology, I was more interested in because it's explaining or trying to explain where we came from, as in where did the universe start, Big Bang, etc. Which is a theory, by the way, for people who don't mm -hmm. know. Um, and then how it's expanding. And if, if the universe is infinite, which we don't actually know, then the chances of there being a exact replica of us on a, another planet that is basically exactly like here is actually certain because of the arrangements of atoms is it's just that will eventually happen it's a bit like the whole monkeys writing on typewriters you know eventually they'll come up with shakespeare if you've got enough of them and that's the same sort of uh, analogy with the universe you know if it's big enough then it's going to be another luke edelston say talking to craig savage <laughs> and that's just mental um yeah. and you start having those sort of thoughts you're just like what and and then you forget, and then you 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 remember you need to cook in the evening or something. And it's just like, yeah, you, yeah. You, you quite easily forget all that, can't you? Yeah, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy goes through that. That there's an infinite amount of space for them to be in. So, so there's an infinite number of people there because 
whatever. Um, but of course, at any point in time, it's it's finite. So the population, the average population of the universe is zero, because because there's infinite planets, but not all of them are inhabited. So <laughs> so there's an infinite number of inhabited ones, but there's a larger infinite number of ones that aren't inhabited. So mm. <laughs> on average, planets aren't populated. It, it's you know, it, it's funny. Yeah. It's got some some fallacious arguments there, but you know, it's funny. Uh, yeah, it's, there's a uh, rabbit hole that I'm probably not qualified enough to go down. I'd say, but it's yeah. it's very interesting, regardless. Yeah. And then there's maybe, the you know, it's you can't catch me because it's turtles all the way down. With the you know the what is it? The world is supported by elephants that are standing on turtles and it's like what are the turtles standing on no no it's turtles all the way down i think i need to read it again it was it's been a long time since i've read that and yeah very weird but funny a good book as well thanks for listening to this episode this isn't your normal uh, thing with the boom you know the music and stuff this is just a reminder to say this is the end of the first part there is a second part if it's not out yet it will be in a week and if it is out then it's obviously out so go and listen to it so enjoy part two craig savage as well and thanks again for listening bye thank you for listening to tipping points if you like this episode please share it with your friends subscribe like and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast player Doing this really helps us to keep providing free content to you. If you want to find out more, get more episodes and exclusive content, please head over to tippingpointspodcast.com. If you've got some insights today, like the way I ask questions, and want to take your journey to another level, then Mindful Productivity Coaching is for you. At Mindful Productivity, we take a holistic approach to make you happier, healthier, and more productive. Our coaching program is tailored to your needs so you get what you want from it. Find out more at mindfulproductivity.net forward slash coaching and book your free discovery call today. That's mindfulproductivity.net forward slash coaching for your free discovery call.